Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show, the place to go to hear out loud and proud what Minnesotans are thinking. And I am your host today, Philip Anthony. Thank you for choosing to join us today, and I'm hoping you are all doing fantabulous. Are you doing fantabulous today, Ruth? I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> fantabulous is my little bird that I, my listeners know. It's a little bit of fanta- fantastic and a little fabulous. So it's like, yeah. My special guest today is Representative Ruth Richardson, who represents uh, Minnesota District 52B is in Bravo, and Ruth serves on the following committees in the Minnesota House, House Transportation, Finance, and Policy Committees, the Commerce, Finance, and Policy Committee, Education Finance Committee, and the, she is the chair of the Education Policy Committee. Thank you, Representative Richardson. Can I call you Ruth? You can, yes. Oh, oh great. <laughs> for join, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show. You're welcome. Now, I can imagine that you are very busy prepping for your campaign, so I want to thank you so much for taking a few moments of your precious time to come and visit us at the Downright Upright Show today. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, the first thing I'd like to, uh, and I'm sure the listeners would also like to know a little bit about your beginnings, about your background, and so... um, where were you born and raised? And can you tell the listeners a little little bit about that? Yeah, I was born and raised in Minnesota. I grew up in Frogtown in St. Paul. Oh, uh-huh. My parents actually moved here from the south right before I was born. My mom hailed from Mississippi and my dad from Alabama. And they came up here with a number of family members in search of economic opportunity and um, a, a, a chance to really um, thrive coming from the segregated South. Mm-hmm. And uh, were your parents uh, in education or what, what background did they have? So um, my my mom um, actually grew up working in the cotton fields in Mississippi. Okay. Her parents uh, were sharecroppers and sharecropping was a uh, pretty brutal institution. Uh, no matter how hard you worked, uh, at the end of the year you always owed money. And so it was often a, um, a cycle of poverty that generations uh, were trapped into. And um, my uh, father's family, they were, also, uh, they were also farmers as well and faced a lot of, a lot of challenges, loss of land, um, living in the segregated South mm-hmm. and a time when there was uh, a lot of turmoil uh, a lot of lynchings, um, you know, the the great uh, migration north, as they called it, was not only about economic opportunity, but it was also about trying to escape uh, some some very uh, brutal and, and and horrific killings as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And when they uh, finally were you, so when you when they came here, you were born here in Minnesota. I was. So when they came here, did they discover a, a new field that they decided to you know be, because up here it's probably easier for them to get quote unquote a regular job um what did they um go into at that point um so my dad uh started as a long haul truck driver um when oh, okay, he was yeah. here and uh and then he uh eventually became a metro transit uh bus driver uh he drove the 16a on university uh, <laughs> 
okay. rode that route with him uh, quite a few times. I was on that bus a yeah. few times myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they uh, they had eight eight kids, so they were uh, outnumbered. Uh, my mom, <laughs> uh, so my mom uh, stayed uh, home. And where were you in that group? Were you in the middle, the end? The I, I, I'm bringing up the rear. I'm the third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I'm the third uh, uh, youngest. And uh, my mom, um, she also did child care. And uh, they opened up our home to a number of foster children um, oh, when wow. we were growing up as well. And so um, my mom was really a visionary in that, um, and you know, within that way. And when we saw the way that drugs were ravaging communities, especially during the crack cocaine era, uh, she was really insistent on ensuring that kids could stay connected in their community, stay connected with their ken, stay connected with their relatives, because she understood the importance of that. Absolutely. And and we, we'll, we'll be talking about this a little later, but um, with the um, Roe v. Wade um, being overturned, there's going to be a lot, a lot of children. Um, we're already you know, uh, overburdened in, in the foster care system, and... Um, Maybe we could talk about that a little later. Um, yeah. your mom, thank, and thank your mom for, because my auntie did that as well. She yeah. took in children that were, um, one One um, of her sons was a um, abused um, alcoholic parents. Um, the other two were physically abused, yeah. So she had, I think, three at, at, at one point. And then one, and then she had some transient in and out, but... Um, yeah, she always loved taking care of children in need. So that you know, and I thank your parents for doing that. And anybody else out there listening that that does have foster children, thank you, because we're going to need that a lot more of that in the future. So, uh, Ruth, so you graduated the University of Minnesota. So, what was your major, by the way? Uh, I majored in history and sociology at the at the university. Um, I actually, nice. I actually started at the university when I was a junior um, in in high school. Uh, the post secondary program. I was one of the um, early adopters of that. That allowed people to leave high school, go to college, and it was fully paid for. It's a great mm. program. Really, really <laughs> yes. nice. So, how does um, your background in sociology help you in your current occupation, serving the people of Fifty Two Bravo? <laughs> I have to call it 52 Bravo. Well, you know, I've, I've always been interested in, um, in people and studying people and understanding how people think. And so that has definitely played a role. And, you know, and after uh, attending the University of Minnesota, um, I did go to William Mitchell College of Law and obtained my, my law degree there. And I think my, oh, okay. yeah, and I think my I think my law degree really helps in terms of not only the research piece of things, but being able to uh, write legislation. And it was really in law school where I caught the, the, the policy bug. Um, as a first year law student, I talked some unassuming lawyer at Legal Aid into hiring me. And uh, what I worked on, I became part of this decriminalization of homelessness task force, was working with a number of Vietnam veterans who experience homelessness and um, just different challenges and barriers coming home, um, you know, facing substance use disorders, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And when they became homeless, there was sort of this, this, this path of where they were finding themselves arrested over and over again 
for uh, what we call livability offenses, things that you just do because you don't have a place to go. You know, sleeping outside, that's a crime, right? Um, oh, boy. The fact that you were um, outside with no legal means of supporting yourself, that meant that you were, quote, unquote, a vagrant. And a vagrant could be arrested at any time, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, anywhere. And it really goes back to the black codes that were created um, after the Emancipation Proclamation because uh, slavery could still exist if you were incarcerated. Vagrancy statutes were created. So if you were an adult with no legal means of supporting yourself, you could be arrested. And that was on the books here uh, in in Minnesota until we worked in the early 2000s to get that, uh, that law repealed. Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you for that. I didn't even know that. Um, was there a particular occurrence in your past that prompted you into entering public service? Um, like maybe you saw an injustice coming up, I'm sure. Well, that's kind of a dumb question, but uh, obviously you did. But I'm sure there was something that happened, maybe personally or to someone that you love, that uh precipitated that uh, that fire in the belly to say, you know what, I'm going to, I need to be more involved in my community. Yeah, you know, I saw a lot of injustice uh, growing up. A lot I'm of sure unf- you did. Yeah, a lot yeah. of unfairness, a lot of um, inequities and in the stories that I uh, heard from, you know, my parents and, and you know, and grandparents um, really, uh, you know, solidified a lot of the challenges that we continue to, to see and have. But I think of myself as an accidental politician because there was no strategic plan. There was like, you know, one day I'm going to run for office and I'm going to do this. Um, It really came out of, it grew out of the work that I was doing in the community uh, because I've spent a lot of time in public service and my career has been all about public service. And when I was approached the first time and someone said, hey, have you ever thought about running for office? I kind of laughed it off and I thought, no, and kind of went on with my day and just happened to be asked uh, that week by a second unrelated person of like, have you ever thought about running for office? I think you should really do it. And I was like, that's weird. <laughs> Someone else asked me that too. But it really, I mean, that was how that journey started. It really started with people encouraging me uh, to run and me starting to ask myself, like, should I run for office? Would I, you know, would I be effective uh, running for office? And, uh, you know, for me, it's really about um Wherever you're planted, you want to be, you want to bloom, and you want to be effective, and you want to be able to do things that are going to be making a stronger, a stronger state for everyone. Mm-hmm. And 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 unfortunately today, um, and I, I was discussing this with Jim Carlson, um, to be in politics, it used to be you had a, a brain and you had a background and you wanted to help the people. Now it's like this entertainment thing. You have Dr. Oz and you have Herschel Walker and you have people, Donald Trump, you have people that were in show business in some way, shape or form. Um, What do you, I mean, I I know this is not even a prepared question, but what do you feel about that, that, that people are voting for people who just because of their celebrity rather than their qualifications, their background and what they can do for the community? What is your feeling about that? You know, I think the most important thing that we can when we can do when we're thinking about um, being effective running for office is asking people, like, what's your vision? What's your plan? 
what do you want to see? What does a stronger state mean to you? What does a stronger union uh, mean to you? And I think that if anyone is coming at this work from the perspective of, I am working to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to thrive, an opportunity to be um, uh, successful, and to ensure that we are creating um, spaces where it's not just about survival, but really about being uh, able to have people reach their full potential, then I think, you know, that that should be the basis. Like, those are the types of, uh, of people that uh, we really need in, uh, in, in office right now. And we're not always going to agree on things. And I think um, and I think that that level of, of dis- disagreement and, and healthy conflict is good. Mm-hmm. Different voices, different perspectives being at the table because none of us are as smart as like all of us when we think about the different experiences and perspectives that we all bring. And so I really want to lift up the diversity of voices that are needed. But at base minimum, if people can't say that they're in this work to create a better space for everyone, that's when it becomes problematic. Well, absolutely. And and do you, uh, when you uh, get input from the community, mm-hmm. um, do you have to knock on their door? Do you have coffee and conversation? Do you have Zoom meeting? I mean, what is your method of picking the brains of your constituents to find out what to, what's making them tick and what, what's going to bring them out to vote for you? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all of the above. Um, door knocking is a great way to yeah. hear directly from people and to hear from people that you wouldn't normally hear from uh-huh. because, you know, you can have coffee and conversations, you can have town hall meetings, and they tend to sort of bring out um you know, those who support you and those who um, uh, are, are excited, you know, for your candidacy. Uh, but being able to um, do door knocking and to hear from people that you don't always hear from, and also just being in the state legislature, you have the opportunity uh, around convening. I mean, there's a number of bills that I've worked on where all of a sudden, you know, there's 50 people like on the Zoom call who all have, you know, an interest interest in what's going on. And so with that, I've had the ability to hear from lots of diverse uh, voices from within our our district as a, as a result of that. And the best way is for people to not forget that our state capital, it's the people's house. And that is the best way to have your voice uh, heard and to be able to have uh, voices amplified that have been underrepresented for too long. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so how did, let's, let's switch a little bit to redistricting because I think that's in your bailiwick here <laughs> because you've been through it. <laughs> um, how did it affect you personally? And I know I am now your constituent. I, I wasn't and now I am. And so that was kind of bizarre because I had spoken to Liz Ryer and I said, um, so when are we going to do some door knocking? Because I would like, no, now you're my uh, rep. So if you ever need me, please let me know and I'll come with you. Um, but um, I, I, am, I do have another job. This is another job. And then I have other things, you know, obviously normal everyday things to do. But I will try to definitely fit you in if I can and help you out. But um, what happened there? <laughs> what happened to 52 Bravo? And what, what can you maybe tell the listeners in a simplified way what, what really occurred? 
So, okay, so here's the interesting thing. I currently represent 52B and I'm gonna represent the new 52B. So the current 52B includes um, Invergrove Heights, uh, Sunfish Lake, parts of Mendota Heights and uh, parts of parts of Egan. And so that um, I will represent through the end of this uh, through the end of this year. So every 10 years with uh, census changes, there's redistricting because each of the districts are supposed to be um, uniform in, in, in size. And so with population shifts and population growth, um, redistricting occurs. Uh, technically, redistricting is supposed to be accomplished by the legislature, but uh, for the last over 50 years, it's been the courts that have been um, drawing the, the lines um, based on the new census numbers that that Is that a good out. thing in your estimation? I mean, I think that the legis it's the legislature's job to do it, but the legislature can never agree on it. So okay, there the, you the, right. the backup plan is well if you can't figure it out well then the courts <laughs> uh -huh, um, uh -huh. the courts will figure uh, will, will figure it out um, and so with uh, so with redistricting uh, 52b changed pretty uh, pretty dramatically and so the new 52b that you're a part of um, includes more of Egan it includes more of Mendota Heights and it includes a small city uh, called Mendota Oh, okay. And are, uh, have you discovered that there are different issues that are, are more pertinent to the new, your new constituency that, that, that weren't before in your old constituency, or is it kind of the same? You know, um, so, I mean, one of the things, when I, when I ran for the first time in 2018, I flipped a Republican seat. Um, Yay. At, yeah. <laughs> I, I flipped a Republican seat at that, um, at that time. And I, you know, one of the things that I would say is very different between sort of that first and second um, election and now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, yeah, yeah. I'm hearing a lot more about that concern than I did in previous uh -huh. um, uh, election um, cycles. I'm still continuing to hear a lot about the cost of healthcare and access to healthcare being um, a, a huge challenge uh, for families and affordable housing. I mean, I've, I've heard about affordable housing throughout all three mm -hmm. um, campaigns. Uh, but one of the things that I'm hearing now more than I did previous is the number of young adults who can't afford to move out of their parents' home. I'm hearing a lot about that um, and door knocking in terms of, um, you know, the only way uh, to sort of make it is to either stay home or to have three or four roommates uh, just oh, because boy. the cost of, of housing is pretty astronomical right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm hearing uh, through, you know, my little circle of friends that the big issue, and maybe you can speak to this, um, is women who uh, need child care. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have it, it's very difficult for them to get a job. Because you know how you hear the Republicans, um, oh, everybody's staying home and we can't get enough people. They're just sitting on their butts and they don't, you know. But meantime, you don't want to do a thing to help these women get 
a job because if they have children, who's going to watch their children for them? You know, it's not it's not a simple thing to just, you know, okay, here, 20 bucks a day and you can, you know, that's not how it works. It's much more expensive and much more time consuming and much more of a, 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 a difficult road to, to, to road to hoe, you know. Mm-hmm. So can you explain about child care a little bit and how that's hurting your constituency especially? Yeah. yeah, you know, I can talk a little bit more about that. And I think, um, you know, and I think that one of the, the pieces of the COVID pandemic, which really shined a light on this, is when the pandemic began and child care centers uh, started to be reserved only for those who were working like on the front lines, I think it became a real eye-opener for a lot of people of what it means to not have um, access um, uh, to child care. And, you know, for for families, especially for, um, you know, for, for working families, the cost of child care can exceed what people may actually be making in terms of what they are, are are bringing home. And when you think of that paycheck, you know, as sort of this pie, it's like, okay, childcare is incredibly expensive. I mean, in thinking about like infant care, it can feel a lot like a mortgage. Um, and how many of us can afford to pay two mortgages, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I think that the... Um, the, the, the reality around this is that there are some pay equity uh, pieces that are here. And for some people, they are um, they're actually better off staying at home because otherwise they're going they're digging themselves into a hole that they're not going to be able uh, uh, to get to get out of and so access to affordable daycare is so important and also access to safe daycare as well because no one wants to be in a space where they feel like they're leaving their child um, that that's not that's not safe that's not quality yeah, like some and that's, neighbor that's or something affordable. that you don't even know I'll take care of your kid you know mm-hmm. um, children children are so precious and you and you love them so deeply and you want them to have only the best care and uh, you know and a reputable child care uh, agency or or uh, school or whatever you want to call it that's what women are looking for to for their children they they they, they that's probably why they're staying home in my opinion you know and and do you think that this medicare expansion medicaid excuse me expansion uh that this new bill um that biden signed will help minnesota in in that way do you think that'll help a little bit towards that uh when it comes to health care for women and uh, struggling families? Yeah, of course. And, you know, and and even here in Minnesota, um, we passed a bill that um, ensured that uh, people who um, were giving birth could have access to to Medicaid extended for 12 months postpartum Mm. uh, because, you know, previously people would have that for about six weeks and then it would go away. And and so um, understanding that, you know, when we when we talk about the maternal mortality crisis um, in in this country, because it truly is a crisis, uh, when you have like black women being three to four times more likely to die from a childbirth um, uh, related cause, we know that um, one of the factors is ensuring that people have access, um, uh, you know, to um, uh, care and they have access to insurance. It's not the only, the only reason. And in fact, when you when you look at um, 
black women who have access to insurance compared with uh, um, you know, white women who have access to insurance, the you still see the disparities. And when a black woman has insurance and a white woman doesn't, you still see disparities within that. So it's not the only thing that is going to help. But I think it is part of really thinking through uh, a community-based approach to this. It's a piece of the puzzle for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I spoke to the um, White Earth Nation representative about the same thing. And the Native communities having the same. It sounds like you're, you know, on the same exact page with this. I mean, it's this inequity between um, you know the haves and have-nots when it comes to healthcare is shocking. It's, well, and part of it is you can actually look at the black folks that are the haves and they still have the same disparities so you can that's what i heard yeah yeah, you can control for income you can control for access to insurance mental health status sud status general overall like health and um they're still three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy related cause and what's outrageous about this is because this is a very persistent disparity that we continue to see um over centuries, like within uh, this country, is that the deaths are preventable. Like these are deaths that can be prevented. There's something that we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if we can get control of Congress um, um, federally and st- statewide, um, the Senate right now is still uh, c- still controlled, correct, by the Republican Party. Um, if, if this next election switches that and you guys can work with the Senate, maybe something can get done with that. You know, things could, we can progress as, as a society. I mean, it's crazy how people don't get this stuff. It just, it's baffling to me. Anyway, but um, so uh, personally, what are uh, one or two laws that you initiated or co-authored, whatever term you want to use, for the people of the district uh, that you feel were the most important? Um, like something that you were, your name was signed to or that you brought forward or something that you're proud of or that you want to talk about? Yeah, I'm trying, you know, I was trying to think through of the 30, um, 30, uh, 34 bills that I chief authored that have been signed into law to whittle that down to the top two because. Yeah, I know. That's tough, isn't it? (laughs) There's some some good ones in there. Um, You know, I, I will say that I'm really proud of the Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act bill that I was able to get um, uh, signed and in, signed into to law, and you know, just kind of based upon the conversation that we were having uh, around really um, seeing what this disparity is doing, not only in Minnesota but around um, around the nation as well. And so, the Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act bill requires hospitals and freestanding birth clinics to have annual training on anti-racism training and implicit bias and how that impacts the outcomes that we continue to see within uh, maternal health uh, outcomes. There's also support to increase the number of midwives and doulas, particularly those who are skilled at serving black and indigenous uh, communities, because we know that representation definitely uh, matters. And we see that quite a bit. I mean, even looking at the infant mortality rates, black infants are twice as likely to die uh, when compared with white infants um, in, in Minnesota. 
Minnesota. But what the data tells us is that when these black infants have access to black pediatricians, that mortality rate is cut in half. So really thinking about ways that we can diversify the workforce was a part of that Dignity in Pregnancy uh, and Childbirth Act bill. And then the other piece of it that I think was really great was um, it uh, provided funds to the University of Minnesota to uh, the institute, the Equity Institute uh, created by Dr. Rachel Hardiman to create a model curriculum that could be used uh, by, by hospitals and clinics. So I would definitely rate that as uh, an important bill that I got passed. And then one that's just really um, close to my heart, uh, we, uh, chief, I chief offered a bill that created uh, the nation's first missing and murdered black women and girls uh, task force within the state. Um, the estimates are that there are somewhere between 64,000 and 75,000 black women and girls who are missing across the United States. And thinking about that number for a second, 64,000 to 75,000, it really spoke to me that we don't even know the scope of this problem. We don't know the scope of this issue. But one thing that we do know is that um, our black girls are less likely to get Amber Alerts when compared with their peers. And um, their cases, whether it's a missing person case or a homicide case, stay open four times longer than other cases. And, um, and then also looking at the media coverage. And so there are... That, that's a big one, too. Mm -hmm. I've, I've no, I mean, whenever you see a little girl missing and it's pasted all over the news, it's always this little blonde, blue-eyed girl who, you know... Um, and you never you never notice Latino girls missing or African Americans or Native girls. It's always you know, and and uh, we need to have a, a more fair way of representing uh, our children as yeah. as as Americans. I mean, you know, we're we're all Americans, all of us, and and you know. Uh, People have to realize that the African-American community is struggling in many different ways, not only from healthcare and, and, and food deserts and, and all the other things that are happening that don't happen in white neighborhoods, but missing children, you know, and, and, you, and thank you for doing this because it's really something, and, and I, you're not the first person to talk about this to me. Um, I have friends that have mentioned it, uh, uh, that when a black child is missing, it's never, you know, you don't see it on the news. It's not on the, even on the local news. It's just, okay, she's missing. Yeah. And uh, we have to open our eyes and start doing more for that. So thank you for doing that, Ruth. That's really great, great work. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? or? You know, I would just say I think that there is, I mean, the, the task force um, has started, and this year, um, I put forward a bill that would have created the nation's first um, missing and murdered black women and girls office to um, actually have uh, resources to look into cold cases so that families could get answers um, and also to ensure that we're doing outreach and work around prevention. Um, because what we are seeing in terms of the intersections with sexual exploitation, human trafficking, and because people recognize, hey, black and indigenous girls, they don't get the same coverage, they don't get the Amber Alerts in the same way, mm -hmm. it, really, it really creates uh, targets for them because people understand 
if I'm targeting black and indigenous girls, it's more likely that the case isn't going to be solved. It's more likely that there aren't going to be extensive resources put into finding, um, um, you know, what's what's um, what's going on. And so that is uh, that is work that unfortunately the Senate stood in the, the way of this year. Uh, the comment was made, well, let's wait and see uh, what comes out of the task force when we know we have a current crisis uh, right now. And in that time period of where we have been waiting, there have been um, several other cases. So the crisis is, 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 is worsening. And I think of little Ellie Reagan, who's been missing now um, for, uh, for well over a month, um, is she a constituent, or the she's not? She's a little black girl who went um, six years old that went missing in Northfield. Um, oh, Northfield. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. And they they haven't been able to locate her, and the the fact that you know there was no Amber Alert, there's been no media coverage around this. People don't even realize that you know, this this is going on and so have been trying um, on social media to continue to, to amplify and lift up her story mm-hmm. because um, she deserves people to continue to look for What's her. What's her name and again? I'm sorry. Ellie Reagan. Ellie Reagan. So we should, maybe all of us should go online, find a picture of Ellie Reagan and place it on our Facebook page and say, this little girl's missing. If you have any information, please contact the police. That would help, right? Something. I mean, we... Yes. You know, again, we're all Americans, all of us, and, and we all have pain, and we all, you know, this. I'm sure the parents are, are distraught beyond recognition about losing the little girl. They can't find her, and they don't know what's where she is or what's going on or anything. So, if any any little thing you do can help, uh, is there anything else we could do? But beside that, I mean, just putting a picture of her on our page or. You know, I think continuing to just like lift up, uh, lift up her story. Um, Ellie's mother was found. Um, they believe that she died by suicide. Oh, and so no. so um, it's a double uh, tragedy here. Yeah, and so um, Jeez. yeah, I think that that's it's it's the most important thing that we can continue to do, and we can continue to hold, um, you know, call out to the media, hold them responsible. Um, and also just understanding that there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into deciding who gets Amber Alerts and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think continuing to lift up those stories around who's getting Amber Alerts and who's not is important, too. Well, your voice on this podcast is going to help. I really feel that because people listen to this. They, they, they listen to uh, radio, podcasts, whatever. And even if you touch one person, that'll get, you know on their Facebook page and place a picture or, or 10 people. I mean, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a what do you call it? A wave, you know? Yes. So if you're out there, Ellie Reagan, her name is, right? R, can you spell it? E-L-L-I-E, and her last name is R-A-G-I-N. R-A-G, Reagan. Okay, mm-hmm. I got it. I was thinking like the president, but it's mm-hmm. not spelled that way. Thank you for doing that, and I appreciate it. Um, so, um one, another question I wanted to ask was, I know you are a huge, huge, that's my New York accent, huge, <laughs> hey, huge. No, it's that New York <laughs> that comes out. Uh, I know you are a huge advocate against racially motivated shootings. Of course, Minnesota alone was home to the killings of George Floyd. I had to, I had to write this out because there's so many I can't even list. 
uh, George Floyd, Amir Locke, Dante Wright, Isaac Aden, and many others, um, and that's just a few. What can we do as a society to prevent these kind of senseless killings in the future? Now, I know it's a police issue, but as people, is there anything, or, or you as a representative, what can you do about that? Yeah, you know, following the murder of, of, of George Floyd, I uh, chief authored a House resolution declaring racism a public health crisis that was passed with bipartisan support off the House floor and created the House Select Committee on Racial Justice. And with that, um, put forward 83 community um, recommendations um, and thinking very broadly across uh, the state and across systems what we could do. And at the same time that we were doing that work uh, at the uh, State House, um, we have a, a people of color and indigenous uh, uh, caucus that pulled together a slate of, of bills, um, really looking at ways that we could reform um, our law enforcement system. And uh, two of the bills that I, I carried as part of that package actually um, passed and became law. One was a ban on something called warrior training. Uh, warrior training is something that um, had uh, been used pretty extensively in Minnesota and uh, you know ac across the nation um, as well. And you know I've seen clips of these uh, warrior trainings, and one of the things that uh, struck me was um, at the outset of this training, this whole idea of um, planting in people's brains is that as a law enforcement person, anytime that you come into contact with a child, a woman, a man, um, be prepared for that person to try to kill you and you be prepared to kill them first. And so it really sort of set up this um, fear mentality that every person that you meet um, is out to kill you. Is out to kill you, right? And oh, and so it it create it create and that fear so often um, can be uh, detrimental, especially when there are these split second decisions, right? That are um, that that are that are being made, and it really went away from this whole idea of um, of like you know, even thinking about like community policing, right? People living in the areas that they that they live in, mm -hmm. um, maybe going to church with these same people, seeing them in the stores, seeing them, you know, in, um, in, in, in school and, and trying to create these spaces for relationships and interaction that can maybe create a little bit more, um, that can create a little bit more understanding. Um, another bill that, um, that, that I was able to get passed out of that uh, was focused on autism training. We've had some really high profile uh, cases, including um, the death of Kobe Heisler, where, you know, there are these situations where, um, you know, someone may have a disability, be it autism, 
be it uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, um, be, be it someone having a mental health issue, and really trying to help people understand what that might look like from a law enforcement perspective. And, uh, and, what, the, and what behaviors they exhibit, those, correct. those people. That's very, very interesting. And, yes. and, and trying to provide some tools, right? And you know, before I came to the legislature, I actually did uh, quite a bit of crisis intervention training with law enforcement at all different levels and really trying to help them understand how like different disabilities might look, how they might present, um, and not just from the perspective of um, of, of, of looking at someone becoming like a, you know, a victim of a police shooting, but also how do they look when they've been victimized, right? How, how, how do we create spaces um, for individuals, particularly with developmental disabilities, who are at higher risk of experiencing things like sexual assault and rape, um, but are more likely to not have their cases pursued because people will see them like, well, they're not a, they're not a good witness, right? Mm -hmm. Their memory is off. We're, we're, and so really being able to give them more tools to kind of navigate uh, situations like that. And, and, and my big one uh, that... I'm sure you could address this better than I can. The no-knock warrant uh, mm -hmm. issue. Um, uh, how can you be in your home? This, this baffles me. How can you be in your home, minding your business, sitting mm -hmm. there, reading whatever you're doing, and somebody barges into your house and shoots you? Yeah. Without... Any questions asked? I mean, without like, who are you? Who are you? First of all, maybe you're just yeah. a visitor. I mean, you, can you address that? Because I'm yeah. th that that makes my blood boil. I'm sorry, it just does. Well, and Representative Athena Hollins has been carrying that no knock uh, warrant bill, and unfortunately, that stalled. But it was uh, that was also that. I mean, that's that's been part of the People of Color and Indigenous um, uh, Caucus uh, agenda. Um, but what the, excuse me, I hate to interrupt you, but what, what, what benefit, if, I'm, I'm going to try to play devil's advocate, what is the benefit on the Republican side for not, for, for wanting to do something like that? What is their benefit to that? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask what Republicans <laughs> are thinking. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I'm trying to think of like the reasoning, because like I'm, I'm a very, you know, pragmatic person, I try to think logically and uh, there's no benefit to this there's absolutely no benefit i mean uh, you walk in somebody's house with your gun drawn you don't know who they are and you just start, start shooting the person this is not the country i want to live in i'm sorry i'm just period full stop i mean i'm sorry i interrupted you about uh, the the bill that was uh, you, you were um yeah and I mean, about. yeah, I mean, and, and we're continuing to work really hard to get that no-knock um, warrant bill. Please do, and, please. I mean, that, that, is, uh, that is something that, um, like I said, it's on our agenda and, we're, and we are committed to continuing to work on. And, you know, the, you know, kind of just thinking through some of the other bills um, that were part of that agenda, uh, Rep Moran had the chokehold ban bill and the aftermath of the murder of George, George Floyd, Floyd. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which um, which did uh, become law. And there, I mean, there are a number of other bills that we have not been able to get um, uh, to get across the finish line. Um, you know, you know, thinking about having um, 
more of a citizen's voice in terms of thinking about the different law enforcement um, uh, collaborations, uh, citizen advisory com uh, committees. Um, Representative Gomez uh, is carrying that bill. Um, Representative Samantha Vang had a bill that would have extended the statute of limitations for family members to um, to be able to come back uh, and file and file suit, um, and and that's a bill that that we're continuing to um, uh, to work on as well because sometimes those statutes of limitations are so short and you have this situation where families are grieving. There's all of these other things that are happening. Um, investigations can be delayed, and sometimes what happens is that while you're waiting for the investigation to be completed, the statute of limitations has, has run. run out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a problem, yeah. Mm -hmm. well. oh, and I think about the family. I mean, every family, every time you hear a story like this, you know what I'm saying, Ruth? I mean, just the, the, the families, just the grief. You know, I, 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 sometimes I don't even, I try to, like when I see another thing on the news, I'm like, uh, okay, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? We have to do something. You know, I know the, you and I, you know, we're just one ripple in the in the in the pond. We can't do everything on our own. But Republicans, you, you, if you're listening out there, even if you have to write to a Republican uh, senator, um, because they're the ones blocking this, and we have to get it through, and we have to be able to talk to, even just write a letter or or speak to them, call them, say, you know. I have friends that are that are going through grief that lost someone or uh, are afraid to go and drive in a car because of the, you know um, or a, a normal like stop you know when your light you know your tail light is out and then you're like all worried like oh my goodness I I, I, I told this story and I'm gonna have to tell I want to tell you because um, it's gonna be really quick but I have an African American friend who I was driving in a car with and uh, uh, I was speeding. <laughs> I have to be honest, I was. And he was in the passenger seat, and I was, you know. So the police officer rolls, I roll down the window, and I go in my pocket, and I get my wallet out, and I get, you know, do all this stuff. And, okay, well, don't do that again, and da-da-da-da-da, and lets me go. So my friend is like, Philip, you didn't have your hand on the steering wheel? You just reached into your pocket. The cop was walking over, and I, and you know, he, he it was like a wake up call to me. Like, I'm thinking as a white man that uh, I don't have to put my hands at uh, 10 and 2 because, you know, he doesn't think I'm going to shoot him. You know, meantime, I could be a crazy white guy. You know what I mean? So there are things that we don't even think about that are happening uh, around us. And, um, so um, thank you for doing this. I really, you know, th that's why this podcast is so important. And, you know, write your representatives, write your senators, whether they're Republican or not. You know, that's another thing. You know, I was just telling a friend, oh, I live in a Republican district. Well, that doesn't mean you can't tell them how you feel. You know, you still, you, you still have a voice. You're still a constituent. You People's know? voices are powerful. Exactly. Even though you're not. Uh, someone who you uh, who voted for that person, you still are a constituent, and you still have a voice, and the, the voice is a powerful, like you said, absolutely. Um, another question is: I know that you were a member of the Minnesota Organization of Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, and since women's health is of great importance to you, what 
What happened to the quality of women's health in Minnesota? Should Democrats not hold on to the House and Senate? Yeah, I worked with a um, Minnesota organization on fetal alcohol syndrome for almost seven years, and um, they're called Proof Alliance now. Uh, they had a, a, a bit of a, a, a name change, um, and you know they they do a lot of work around just creating um, uh, awareness about uh, about the impacts of prenatal uh, alcoholic. Uh, alcohol exposure, and also provide um, supports and, and services uh, for families and uh, for kids and adults as well. And I mean, as we're looking forward to this uh, election, I mean, what's on the ballot is uh, really important uh, issues. Um, reproductive justice, reproductive health um, is is on this ballot. And with- Women's, women's issues across the board, pretty much, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. A hundred percent. And, and, and thinking about, you know, where we are within this space right now, where so many of just basic human rights are under assault. Um, when when we talk about voting like your life depends on it, we really mean <laughs> that because I yes. mean, that I mean this is this is where we are at. Um, our our very democracy is is at stake, and so this uh, this is one of the most important elections. I I, I don't want to pat myself on the back, Ruth, because I don't do that, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, uh, during the 2020 election, when um, uh, Voldemort was running for president, a re-election, I should say, um, I, I literally did maybe 20,000-plus phone banking calls. Mm-hmm. I spent, because it was during COVID, I had no life anyway. <laughs> and let me tell you how every single Trump voter that I switched, I think it was about maybe five or even just even that five or six people that I switched, it gave me such a feeling that I, I made I made a difference. Mm-hmm. Five or six people, it could have been maybe less, no, I think it was five or six people, and I was able to convince them that this is not the person you think he is, you know, and, and you yeah. should be doing this instead of that, and uh, it, it's, so, it's so important. Uh, Every vote matters, and I mean, we had elections this last cycle that were decided by one vote, two votes. Oh my goodness! You know, um, forty votes, and so um, I, you know, I think just just understanding how important those votes are, and you know, you sometimes hear people say like, "Oh, voting doesn't really matter. My vote's really not going to matter." But when you see how close some of these elections have truly been, mm-hmm. um, I mean, think about it. Losing an election by one vote, losing an election by two votes, um, and you know the work that you're doing, finding five people would have been the difference <laughs> within. You know, maybe within maybe you're that, right. Yeah, within yeah. that, you know, within uh, those elections, and that's so, what surprises yeah. me, though, because you know they say, you know, they, you know, that that universal they, um, that uh, they Republicans voters are much more excited about the coming election. But but then I look back and I say, well, 
they don't believe the election elections were were honest. They believe that the, they believe in the big lie. Um, so why are they voting then? <laughs> I mean, they don't understand. Either you have faith in the system, you believe in democracy, or you don't. And uh, why why have that fire in the belly to go out and vote if you don't believe in democracy at all? Yeah, I mean, right? we're we're at a really strange time <laughs> right now in terms of you know looking at uh, electoral uh, uh, politics. But my my thought around this is always around if our votes don't matter people wouldn't be trying so hard to vote to disenfranchise people oh, from voting. Oh, that too, correct. Yeah, it's like if if voting didn't matter, there wouldn't be this whole idea around, oh, let's just expunge people from the voting records, right? Or drop boxes, get rid of the I mean, you got mm-hmm. Houston, the, the the biggest city in mm-hmm. Texas. They had all these during COVID, they had drop boxes where people were able very conveniently to drop off um, yeah. their ballots, and all of a sudden now... They're removed. They're all gone. Or people having to drive an hour and a half to vote. Or, you know, closing polling places so people have to stand in line for eight hours in order to uh, to vote. Not repairing voting machines. Oh, I know the water, and the lines, <laughs> the food. I was getting to that too. But, I know. Yeah, it's, it's like... bizarre. It's I mean, all of it is... All of it is around... Um, trying to uh, prevent people sure. from voting, sure. and shouldn't uh, shouldn't we be doing everything to make it easier for people yeah, to but vote? But you know, I believe in the resiliency of the American voter. I believe mm-hmm. that, especially in the African American community, how when you tell African Americans you can't vote, they're going to come out and vote <laughs> all the more, you know. And that's why I'm hoping that uh, um, in Georgia and uh, you know with Stacey Abrams and mm-hmm. um, uh, Raphael Warnock and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that state alone is really to me is, is going to be a bellwether because uh, that's a state in transition right now. It's it's moving more blue, and uh, if we can get it to be blue and stay blue, maybe we have a better chance of moving this country forward because you know the the way the the way the electoral colleges works and the way the senate works you got states like wyoming that have a hundred thousand people and then state like california has what nine billion people (laughs) and they have the same amount of senators in Mm -hmm. each state (laughs) i mean god what kind of representation is that anyway um the last question before we come to the to the shift I am a cis gay man, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what policies can the House Democrats introduce to make the LGBTQ people in your district confident that they will hold on to their rights as equal Minnesotans? And and to add a PS to that, um, African American um, trans women mm-hmm. are the most affected mm-hmm. by discrimination. They're getting killed. Murders, finding missing, They're mm-hmm. missing, mm-hmm. Um, being treated so inhumanely. I mean, uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I find words to describe it. Can you expound on that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and I, and I want to go back to, you know, when I um, drafted the House resolution declaring racism a public health crisis, because when looking at that, 
we took a really intersectional approach uh, to that House resolution. And we talked about the intersections, um, not only with gender, with disability, but also looking at LGBTQIA plus um, uh, communities as well. And so as we're thinking about those recommendations and thinking about um, the uh, the intersection. I mean, with the missing and murdered Black women and girls. I mean, the the um, the, the homicide rates um, for uh, Black uh, trans folks is is staggering. You know, when you're looking when you're looking at that. Um, you know, right now with Roe versus Wade uh, being overturned and rolled back, and then just listening. Uh, to what people are thinking about overturning next. Oh, yeah. Because th- they're saying the quiet parts out loud now, right? Because it used to be sort of... Well, Clarence of, Thomas pretty much said it in his opinion, didn't he? Yeah, well, yeah. And even before Clarence Thomas, the opinion that was leaked... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, went through and was like, you want to know what's next? Next is going to be uh, marriage equality. Um, Birth and, control. You know, and, and, and looking at that not only from an LGBTQ plus um, uh, community issue, but also let's talk about interracial marriage because that looks like that's on the Yeah, top. but that won't go because Clarence <laughs> won't allow that to happen. <laughs> but it was in the leaked opinion. So <laughs> it's, it's, we're laughing, but it's sad. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it didn't apply. To, what, what doesn't apply to Clarence, you know, uh, being in an in a, in a interracial marriage, um, he wouldn't let that slide. But, but my but my point is, it's in there. It's in there, yeah. And the other piece is that then you had senators talking about, like, mm, Brown versus Board of Education. What do we have integrated schools for? So I think at this, oh my goodness. You know, at this point, we are at the space within our, 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 our country where we're going back in time. And so, and, and these are not new ideas. These are not new thoughts. We've read this book before in terms of this idea of creating, um, uh, you know, a tale of two cities. And so um, we know how this turns out. And that's why this that's why these elections are so. Oh, yeah. Are so go out and vote, ladies and gentlemen, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've come to the part of the show I like to call the shift mm-hmm. um, where I shift questioning away from. You and your job as a state senator. Before we shift, can I say one thing? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Before we shift. (laughs) I also just want to talk really briefly about hate crimes. Yes. Because I think in terms of of what we have uh, been seeing here uh, in our state and also um, nationally as well, and I think that um, understanding there's, there's a need for um, more more protections um, for for communities and populations populations of color and LGBTQ absolutely Latino well. the, yeah. the Native communities yes. Asian mm-hmm. the Asian community too I mean mm-hmm. after Donald Trump kept calling it the Kung Flu yep I mean I hate I mean just that makes me cringe right after that you saw these the spike in anti-asian crimes and um well i mean the buffalo massacre um there were uh there were uh um california also had shootings around that time yeah, that yeah. were focused on asian populations didn't get as much attention right. as what uh, what happened in buffalo but i just think that it's really important that we continue to like lift up and call out the fact that 
people are at risk for their immutable characteristics. Exactly. Things they can't control. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, going back to the shift, I just wanted to shift the questioning now yeah. to some more federal and state things. Um, uh, since you are a state politician, this transition will be uh, shifting questions away from concentrating on state politics and more on federal. All right. Um, well, let's let's. I just want to say one more thing about state. Uh, about Scott Jensen, for example, who was running for governor right now. Mm -hmm. um, if heaven forbid he would were to be elected governor, in in that cringeworthy idea, um, other than banning abortion care statewide, what other obstacles would Democrats face should that scenario play out? I, I, again, I, I like to be the devil's advocate and try yeah. to get people because you know sometimes you can shake people up by giving them the you know, the, what, what the possibilities are. And this is one of the possibilities and what would happen in that case. I mean, one of the first thing that, things that come to mind after banning abortion, because that clearly is front of mind yeah, for that's me what he's gonna and do. a lot, yeah. of, a lot mm -hmm. of people right now, um, is his response to this pandemic, which has killed millions of people. Wasn't he a doctor, and, though? And, and he, he is a doctor, yes. He is a doctor, and so I, I mean, I I just think about um, that and the the risks mm -hmm. um, around uh, his approach, um, and and really the uh, the impacts uh, for communities because we know that the COVID pandemic. Um, ravaged Minnesota, it's ravaged this nation, and there have been deep disparities in terms of particularly looking at communities of, of communities of color. So it's a very risky proposition. Um, yeah, preserving democracy in 2022 and 2024. See, that's my big thing, because again, mm -hmm. I think we were talking about this before we yeah. started the podcast. All these other issues are are important but without democracy you know you can't nothing can be done so um there are states including ours where we have candidates that are all in on the big lie what can be done to stop spreading disinformation about election uh you know uh, this was these ballots were rigged uh, uh machines were tapped this that you know space lasers all of this stuff <laughs> I mean, it's the QAnon. It's basically QAnon uh, uh, conspiracies. What do you? What could we do about this? Well, I think the most important thing that everyone can do is vote. Of course, yes. <laughs> um, I think you know, just starting at um, at uh, a base minimum with that, and and also um, uh, holding holding people uh, accountable, right? Um, after the. Uh, 2020 uh, uh, election, I was sued. <laughs> a number of other... Uh, you were sued? Yes, I was sued uh, by uh, an election denier that said, no, you didn't really, you know, you, you really didn't win the election. I wasn't the only one. There were a number of people um, uh, who were sued. But why is it when Democrats win, it's never real? You know, it's always a fake election. What's up with that? You know... <laughs> 
once again, you're asking me to get into the heads of people that I don't think that I know that I would be able to answer that question for you. I, I know, I know. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, logic creeps into the equation. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that um, we have to be not only vote, but like you said, we have to hold people accountable for what they have said. I mean, look, Donald Trump said that, you know, um, the election was stolen. He still says the election is stolen. And meantime, he's being sued by multiple different people for, for, for trying to pick fake electors and send them to Washington. I mean, in, in, in Georgia, New York, D.C. Um, but we have to get, don't we have to get back to the brass tacks and say that the elections are not rigged? Period. Regardless, who wins? I mean, that's where we're. That's that's where we're. That's where we're at right now. Um, and I know that there has been, you know, conversations just around people feeling like all of this is um, uh, the start for a civil war. For I mean, because oh, I mean, because I mean, we've seen what happened on January sixth, and January sixth got a lot of attention. Um, what didn't get as much attention is that there were House members here in Minnesota that had people descend on their homes with AR-15s and mobs mm-hmm. that were designed to intimidate, that were designed um, uh, to threaten. And so um, understanding that what we saw on January 6th um, and these videos that we're seeing that are playing out like through the hearings, there were things like that happening here in Minnesota at that same time. And so as we think about um, what the what the future looks like, we also need to be honest about what we need to be uh, thinking about, what we need to be um, uh, uh, preparing for, because when people show you who they are, believe them. Oh, absolutely. Finally, the last question I'd like to ask, I can't believe the time's passed so far. It's so exciting talking to you. <laughs> I know you serve on the Education Policy Committee. What mm-hmm. can you tell our listeners about CRT, critical race theory, and how it's not being taught in K-12, through despite what you hear on right-wing news outlets? Now, I know I've, I've been, you know, I, I, I've been going through this ad nauseum. Um, it's, it's a postgraduate course from what I'm hearing and from what people in the know have been telling me. So can you just lay this out on the line and just tell the listeners the truth? I guess I would say this. If you have a child who is taking a critical race theory course, then I say congratulations to your child for being accepted to law school and congratulations to you, parent, for raising a future lawyer. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I think what what people are really concerned about is teaching the true history of this country. Well, see that that that's where the uh, yes. So this is what I'm. This is my idea. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. They're using, they're calling it critical race theory, mm-hmm. but what they're upset about, I think, and this, I'm, again, I'm playing devil's advocate. I, I try to do that as much as I can to try to show both sides of the coin, but you you obviously, you and I are on the same page on this. Mm-hmm. Um, white children, this is 
what I'm thinking. White children are going to feel, oh, how bad the white people, look what they did to the African uh, people that were brought here, and it makes the white children, this is what I'm thinking, uh, uh, feel uh, like they're the bad guy. And uh, that's not what CRT is about, and that's not what's happening in school, I don't think. I mean, I, I, I don't even remember learning about slavery. I mean, I'm 62 years old, so obviously the curriculum was way different back then. We, we still learned Christopher Columbus discovered America, you know, when there were millions yeah. of uh, natives uh, living here at the time. So um, you think that's what it is, or uh, I don't know? Well, I, I will say this. It's like when we talk about racism, we talk about systemic racism, it's uncomfortable for people. Sure. And the reason it's uncomfortable is because there's something that's really wrong. <laughs> if there was nothing wrong, it wouldn't be an uncomfortable conversation to that's have. Right. And yeah. so I think it's acknowledging the fact that that discomfort is embedded in the fact that there's something deeply wrong. Um, the other thing that I would say is that when we're, when we're talking about telling the true history of this country, it's also about understanding that there are many contributions that black folks, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, um, you know, and, um, you know, Asian and Pacific Islanders have made <laughs> to this country as well. Right. So when we're telling the full history, it's about acknowledging the fact that um, we have made uh, tremendous contributions to the formation of this nation and the continuation of this nation. And it's also about acknowledging the, the true history of what has happened here. And that does a couple of things. A, um, does it make people uncomfortable? Absolutely. And you know what? It should make people uncomfortable because we don't want to repeat those things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, as you well. learn history so you don't repeat the bad things that that happened in history. And exactly. I don't think I don't understand why a parent would be opposed to that. See, that doesn't make sense to me. It's again, it's it's bizarre that people would even question. Worrying about that their children's feelings will be hurt, that's not the issue here. It's about um, what happened and what can we do to not let that happen again. And you also want people to see reflections of themselves in the curriculum that's taught, right? Correct. You want people to be able to see what's possible. <laughs> yes, Katanji Brown-Jackson, and I always repeat her because I, she's such an inspiration, that when she became Justice of the Supreme Court, little... Black girls are now looking there and going, hey, guess what? If she can be there, so can I be. can be. Mm -hmm. I almost cry, I could cry when I think about it because mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, when uh, and I use Pete Buttigieg as my example. Um, I never thought I'd ever see a cabinet member on the, mm -hmm. in the, in our uh, country that's part of my community, and um, it. I was literally in tears when he swore him with his husband. Yes. Okay, I don't want to get emotional, but anyway, uh, Kamala you know, Harris, our VP, exactly. we can't forget her. Oh, exactly, <laughs> she, and she's also an Asian yes. uh, woman, mm -hmm. so she's multiracial, yes. and uh, yeah, she was an inspiration for me. And, and when she swore in Katanji Brown Jackson, there you got that. We got two for the two for there exactly. <laughs> anyway, but you have been such a pleasure. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show, and. Um, I just want to thank you for coming and for sharing your, your ideas with the listeners because 
you are, uh, you know, full disclosure, I've never met you, and, uh, I, and uh, you're my rep, and uh, I'm so finally, uh, so glad that I finally got to meet you, and uh, we, we were able to share this time together, and I hope that I can help you in any way possible with your campaign and knock on some doors with you and... You know, maybe I can do some interviews while, while we're doing that. But uh, so for more information about Representative Ruth Richardson, you can follow her on, uh, is it ruthforhouse.com? Yeah, that's our, that's our campaign um, webpage and also on Twitter at Ruth for House. At Ruth for House. Okay, yeah, yeah and we're going to be posting the links right next to your podcast when it gets posted on the, on the uh, AM 950 uh, website. So view, viewers can go just simply click on there and, and find out more information about you. And uh, maybe we'll do some coffee and conversations in the future or something. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm always down for that. I, I don't drink that. coffee, but I'm down for yeah. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you, um, uh, Representative Richardson, for sharing your time with us on the Downright Upright Show. And to our listeners, thank you for spending time with us today. And please stay tuned for more of the Downright Upright Show in the future. And ciao for now. Bye-bye.